Hello, and welcome to the All Bets Are Off podcast, a gambling addiction recovery podcast brought to you by those with lived experience. If you're here and having difficulties with gambling, please reach out. There are plenty of people on your side. There's a comprehensive list of support services over on our website, www.allbetteroff.co.uk. It's now time to crack on with the pod. Welcome to the final instalment of season four of the All Bets Are Off podcast. Unfortunately, my partner in crime, Chris, couldn't be here with me today as he's up in London with the Coalition Against Gambling Ads Park the Bus Tour, for which I'll actually be heading to myself tomorrow. However, Chris and I have added a 20-minute chinwag to the end of today's podcast as a little bit of a roundup for the season. Anyway, enough about that. It's time to welcome our final guest of the season. Today, we have Rick Benson, the founder of Algamus Gambling Recovery Center, which is located in Prescott, Arizona. How are you doing today, Rick? I'm well, thank you, Brian. I'm very glad to be with you. Brilliant, brilliant. And so, Rick, b- before we talk about the formation of Algamus, can you take us a, a little bit uh, back in time, I guess, and talk about your introduction to gambling? Having done my research a little bit, I know you started out flipping baseball cards. In fact, <laughs> I-, I really wanted to-, to ask about that because it's a phrase I've heard a lot of, and I actually recall watching a documentary a few months ago about gambling-related harm. I can't recall the title for the life of me, but it was specifically about uh, African-American, the African-American population in the US. And they talk about flipping baseball cards. But for a little old Englander like me, um, what is flipping baseball cards? So I imagine this is true in Europe and in Great Britain as well. Baseball cards, football cards, basketball cards, they're trading cards. Most people buy those because I had a keen interest in baseball. And so I I would buy cards and try to accumulate an entire set of baseball cards. But one of the side activities that happened, even in elementary school, in grades one through six, is there would be this game called flipping baseball cards. Now, the, the way the game works is you and I flip a card at the same time. I say that the two flips are going to match. They're both going to be heads or they're both going to be tails, okay? If that's the case, I get your baseball card. If it's not the case, if it comes up one head and one tails, you win. And obviously, we can do that about once every minute. And and I can either win many of your baseball cards or you can win many of my baseball cards or we can kind of break even, if you will. It, It seems like a harmless activity but it's really an introduction to gambling for a person who's eight, nine, ten years old. Yeah, absolutely. And we see that in today's world, I guess, in in terms of from a gaming perspective, often, you know, these in-game uh, functionality such as uh, loot boxes, skin betting, etc. And so this is, I guess, is the old school way of, of introducing youngsters to, to gambling. So um, following on from the um, from the baseball, um, the flipping baseball cards, um, how did you get into sort of what you might describe as more hardcore levels of gambling? I went away to a boarding school because I had disciplinary problems and my parents thought that would be the best place for me to be. I was at that boarding school for three years. There were a number of very wealthy students from very wealthy families there. I I was not one of those. My mother went back to work in order to support my going to this boarding school. I grew up around a bridge table. My parents were both very expert bridge players. I realized that I was the second best bridge player on the entire campus. And I partnered with the best bridge player on campus. This is at the age of... um, 17. And we decided that we were going to play bridge for money against these students from wealthy families. Bit of a hustle. I won a lot of money in my last year in boarding school. That was my real introduction to gambling. I mean, I, I I can recall playing bridge myself many, many years ago. God, I, I haven't played bridge for a long time. I've probably forgotten how to play. But yeah, definitely, I can understand the attraction if you're very good at it for it being a, a bit of a side hustle, particularly as a, as a student. And I also know that you were keen on your horse racing, which I assume came a little bit uh, after that, what attracted to you the, uh, attracted you to the sport of horse racing? I was also uh, uh, someone that loved my horse racing during my uh, active.
those gambling days? I was now graduated from college and working as the general manager of a large rock and roll nightclub. There was a, a thoroughbred race course 10 miles away. Um, a fellow staff member, actually my assistant manager, said, let's go out to the track one one day. And he knew enough, uh, uh, he knew more than I did. I knew how to bet win, place, and show because I had bet some horses and some high lie during my college days. But he knew how to exotically wager, exactus, perfectus, trifectus, et cetera. So he says, pick a number, and I pick three, and he picks six, and we box an exactus, six, three, and three, six. That exacted, and notice that I can recall this like it happened five minutes ago. It happened in 1972. That exacted paid $376.40. And I said, wow, um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach myself to be a professional horse player. I, I bought books on handicapping. Within three months, I had resigned my job in the delusion that I was a professional gambler. And I started playing horses every day. I was at the racetrack every day. I mean, it sounds pretty uh, like a pretty hectic life. And what did that entail? And and how did you cope with uh, with with the swings? You know, I assume there were times when you would go on what we often refer to as heaters and would do well for yourself. But what was the reality? Uh, were you were you often getting in too deep? Well, no. Well, initially, I was in the winning phase of the addiction, the first phase. And I was winning more than I was losing, but I was incurring other consequences, relationship consequences. Um, my wife said, either you're going to go get a job or I'm going to leave because I'm not going to put up with this. And so I did. I went and got a, manage a management job in the hospitality industry. Coincidentally, not, not by design at that time, but coincidentally, that job was two miles away from that same racetrack. So she would think that I was going in to work at noon when I didn't have to be at work until five o'clock in the afternoon. And so I'd be at the racetrack in the afternoon. Now I'm hiding my gambling from her because I still have a, a burning desire, if you will, to gamble almost on a daily basis. Now I discover bookmakers and I start betting sports. And strangely enough, I was and still am a very huge hockey fan. So unlike a lot of sports bettors that I know who primarily started betting on football and, and then perhaps transitioned to baseball or basketball, I actually started betting hockey. And I wasn't doing all that badly with it uh, initially. So I'm in the winning phase. But then over a period of six years, I moved from the winning phase into the losing phase. Now the losses are more than the wins. The bank account is depleting. I'm betting sports very heavily, and but at the same time, I'm I'm somewhat a rising junior executive in a restaurant corporation, and I get a promotion so that I'm traveling about twenty some weeks a year doing management seminars for this restaurant corporation, and I have occasion to go to Los Angeles, and my business associate in Los Angeles, who I was kind of a friend, says to me. Have you ever been to Vegas? No. Would you like to go? Yes. And he said, well, on your way to Los Angeles to do this next seminar, we'll meet in Vegas for the weekend. When I discovered Vegas, I thought I had discovered Valhalla. I thought it was the greatest place on the, on the face of the earth. I mean, I, I was just mesmerized. And I immediately started to teach myself to become a, a, a professional blackjack player, card counter, if you will. And, and I became a good enough card counter that I was asked not to play blackjack in some major Vegas casinos. But it didn't matter because the addiction was overriding all of the mathematical ability that I had, which was significant. I had significant mathematical ability, but the addiction totally overrode it. Now I'm in Vegas and I'm trying to get to Vegas every weekend if I possibly can, because I'm, I'm totally enthralled by playing blackjack and betting sports simultaneously. Of course, at that time, Nevada was the only state in the United States where you could bet sports legally. There were sports books in Nevada, you know, but nowhere else in the United States. Otherwise, you're gambling illegally with a bookmaker, which I was certainly doing as well. I then set my sights on, I'm going to move to Vegas and become a professional gambler. And unfortunately, I did a substandard job with that employer during the time that I was with them because my focus was exclusively on the gambling. 
And finally, I resigned the job. I probably would have been fired if I hadn't resigned because my performance wasn't good. I resigned the job and I moved to Vegas. Now I'm living part-time in California and part-time in Las Vegas. And I'm back and forth between Santa Monica, which is Los Angeles, California, and Vegas. It's about 300 miles. I'm I'm back and forth a couple of times a week, sometimes flying, sometimes driving. And I have a significant other, um, a partner, and she's going to work every day in, in Los Angeles. And I'm either going to the racetrack or going to Vegas every day. And that goes on for almost four years. And I'm in the total delusion and the total insanity that I am a professional gambler. And that's what you were telling other people was your vocation. And And, and not only, see, I think that one of the things that happens in to most people in addiction, it certainly helped happen to me, is that here's where the lie started. Mm-hmm. The lie started with me believing my own lie, i.e. I'm a professional gambler. Once I believed it, I sold that to people. I told people that, and they absolutely believed it, that I was a professional gambler, including, I won't mention the name, but there was a very well-known television producer in Hollywood who I became slightly friendly with because my best friend worked for him. And he was fascinated by the fact that I was a professional gambler. He used to sit and talk to me about it for hours. And you were just selling this facade. To me, it was not a facade at that point. Mm. To me, to me, I believed it in spite of the fact that my, my financial situation was becoming really disastrous. And I was doing whatever I needed to do to get money to gamble. And that went on for about four years until finally she kind of helped me to get out of the worst of it because she said, I've been accepted into a doctoral program at the University of Chicago and I want to go back to Chicago and will you come with me? And I said, yes. And I knew I needed to get out of Vegas because I was starting to get into into some serious trouble with some serious people. I wanted to ask about your time in Vegas, actually, Rick. Um, So in terms of, I mean, you mentioned earlier on, you were probably better at certain games. And the reason why I asked this is because I look back on my own story and I was a really good poker player. You know, I would often make a lot of money playing poker. But the problem being is, is as a compulsive gambler is I had no bankroll management. It would just be depleted by other forms of betting or casino games, etc. Was that the same with yourself in respect of, you know, you said that you, you know, could count cards and, and so forth. So you might be able to make a good chunk of money here, but your compulsive nature didn't really, it, it didn't really matter if you made any money here because it was going elsewhere. I would suspect that I was almost in the black profitable in my entire blackjack fight, but it was offset, as you just said, by being tremendously in the red with tremendous losses in my sports gambling. Now, I never, I almost never gambled on machines. I never went to a crap table. I didn't understand it well enough. I understood the game of Baccarat, but I had no interest in it. And when I first got to Vegas, one of my gambling mentors took me to a poker pit in Vegas. And he said, I want you to just watch here for about five minutes on the rail of the poker pit. And he said, now, listen to me. He said, don't ever sit down at one of these tables because these guys are all infinitely better poker players than you are. And if you sit down, you will be a fish and they will eat you up. So don't. And I followed that advice. I knew that I wasn't a great poker player. And I knew that there were guys sitting at those tables who were, quote, making a living playing poker and that I needed not to sit down at a poker table. But So my Vegas play was almost exclusively blackjack and sports, hockey, football, basketball, baseball. It's incredible that you still had the foresight, though, to know where your strengths were, which often in the haze of gambling addiction, that's not always the case. It can become quite muddled and, you know, you start chasing things that, you know, you know, well, you sort of kind of... you sort of deep down know that that's not where your strengths lie, but that compulsion. It also has a little bit to do with statistical probability. I mean, I remember when I first came to Gamblers Anonymous and people said, you can't buy a lottery ticket. And I thought that's, that's absolutely ridiculous because I never bought lottery tickets. I knew that the chances of being struck by lightning twice was greater than the chances of winning the lottery. What would I buy a lot? The only time I bought a lottery ticket is when it got to be a really big number in the lottery. 
I would I would buy five one dollar tickets. I'd spend five dollars on the lottery, and I knew that I was burning the five dollar bill when I did it. I knew I had no chance of winning, you know, or almost no chance of winning. So it wasn't, and it was the same thing with the slot machines. I mean, I'd walk past the slot machines in Vegas casinos and see these people sitting there and say, "Man, you people are going to are get you're suckers. You're getting killed." You know, I mean, the house is taking so much money. Yeah, RTPs are not great. At the same time, what I wasn't saying was. Look what the rake is that the thoroughbred track is taking. It's not a little bit of money. No, I hear that. And you, and you touched upon your relationship um, and what it was doing to you. So I wanted to sort of kind of like explore that a little bit more in terms of overall, what was it doing to you? One, your mental health, but two, uh, also the impact that it was having on your persona, your relationships and, and uh, you, you know, your loved ones. I became very grandiose, very excessively entitled, and very self-centered. She went to work every day. And as I said, I went to the racetrack or the casino. She she begged me on more than one occasion to go get a straight job. And this was my delusional response at the time. Don't you see what I do every day? There's absolutely no time in this day for me to go get a job. I get up in the morning, I read three different newspaper sports sections. Then I check lines in about five or six different cities around the country with bookmakers. Then I either have to drive to the, to, to the racetrack or fly to Vegas. I don't have any time in this day to go to work. Don't be, don't be ridiculous. I mean, it's crazy because you're going back to sort of like the 70s and, and probably 80s. So in comparison to today's world where, you know, because you're, you're obviously incurring a lot of expenses that you've somehow got to cover. So it's not just making a little bit of profit. You have to go some, uh, you know, to have a profitable day. What with the expenses being incurred with travel and accommodation and whatnot? Yeah. And, and, and rather than um, after a period of time where I was getting some comps in some Vegas hotels, another compulsive gambler and I got a two bedroom, a, a two bedroom condo. We rented a two bedroom condo. So I, but he was, he was an interesting guy because he was a wealthy guy who literally, he lost all of it over a period of about five or six years. He, he had sold his corporation and he, he had an annual payout. I think it was around $250,000 a year for 20 years. So he had, you know, he had bankroll to gamble with. And they came to him after about the fourth year and they, and they knew he was a compulsive gambler. And they said, we'll buy you out. We'll give you $2 million right now instead of 250 to, to terminate your contract. And I told him, I said, don't do it because I, I knew what was going to happen. And he did it. He took the $2 million buyout. And he lost that $2 million in a couple of years because he thought he was a different gambler than I was in terms of venue. He thought he was the greatest crapshooter on the face of the planet. And how many years in, How many years into that did, did he end up selling the, the rest of that? Um, it was about five years into the 20, into the 20 years when he, when he sold it out. And, when, and then our, re, our relationship ended because I couldn't watch it anymore. He literally became an animal. You know, I mean, he, 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 he was just awful to everybody in his orbit, more so to other people than to me. We were pretty close. And I suspect the last that I heard of him, and this was late 80s, probably, I think he was working as a crap dealer. He was, to he was totally broke, so he was dealing craps in Vegas. I mean, he knew the game. I mean, I, I want to touch upon Vegas a, a, again. And again, for someone like myself, I've never been to Vegas, just a little old Englander, so to speak. And what is... Um, was it was it like what we see now? So, for example, when I've watched documentaries around Vegas and, uh, you know, the levels of poverty in the surrounding areas, people begging on the streets, you know, just so they can get inside and maybe have a few goes on the slots and, and or, or on the tables. Was that how it was back then as well? You'd get a lot of that? There was some of that, but we didn't see too much of it because we were we were high roller gamblers, if you will, who were gambling on the strip. In the, in, in the major, huge Vegas casinos. But what, what I did see was a number of people in the Vegas sports books who I knew had a gambling problem or 
who I knew gambled problematically, even if I didn't think that I did. And I remember, and I've shared this story in recovery more than one time. I remember when a couple of people that I used to hang out with in the sports books on a daily basis, we would say the next best thing to gambling and winning is gambling and losing. Well, what does that tell you? That's right. It, mean, it means that, that, that we're all here about the act. I didn't, couldn't say this at the time. We're all here about the action. It's not really about winning or losing anymore. Now, that, that also characterizes the third phase of the, the third and final phase of the addiction. And the chasing desperation phase of the addiction, what we know as recovering gamblers is it doesn't have that much to do, if anything, with winning or losing anymore. It's all about having to stay in action. It's like the heroin addict has to shoot heroin every day. We have to gamble every day. Very, very true. I mean, uh, something that I've spoken a lot, uh, a lot about. Uh, pe- people ask me, you know, throughout a 15-year addiction, you know, was it about the money? And I say to them, after a year, 18 months, it was no longer about the money. Money had been and gone. I was, it, it was as you say, it was about the act and, um, you know, about... Um, trying to keep that pretense up and and where was I going to get my next bet from? And, and as you say, gambling every day. And, um, you know, I mean, it's it's fair to say that I'm, I'm really in, enjoying this incredible lived experience story of, of yours, Rick, and I'm sure our listeners are too. But what I wanted to do is just have a quick break uh, in which we can hear from our sponsors, Gamban, and uh, we'll be back with more of Rick's story as we talk about his recovery and also uh, the formation of, 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 of Algamus. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. The All Bets Are Off podcast is brought to you in association with Gamban, and they've teamed up with Gamcare and Gamstop to formulate TalkBan Stop. The Talk Ban Stop campaign offers a trio of free tools to prevent gambling harm. With support via Gamcare's National Gambling Helpline, free Gamban blocking software, and Gamstop self-exclusion. Head to www.talkbanstop.com for more information. Talk Ban Stop is only available in the UK, but to block your devices from accessing gambling sites and apps, you can get Gamban at gamban.com or on the App Store or Play Store, wherever you are in the world. Now, though, it's time to get back into the pod. Welcome back to the second half of what is the final episode of season four of the All Better Off podcast. I'm delighted to say that I've still got the one and only Rick Benson on the line. Now, Rick, I would love to hear about your recovery and the methodology that you use to get yourself free from the shackles of gambling. You first attended a Gamblers Anonymous meeting in Chicago, I believe that's right. Can you tell us what what, what that experience was like? So what brought me to my first Gamblers Anonymous meeting, like many of us, was consequences. I had a whole series of consequences. I had a an arrest as a result of my gambling. Fortunately, through a set of circumstances, I was not convicted. That charge was dismissed. I had a complete federal bankruptcy two years before I ever went to my first Gamblers Anonymous meeting. I'd lost two jobs as a result of my gambling, and I was now losing the 10-year relationship. Mm -hmm. She changed the locks for about the fifth time, and this time I wasn't manipulative enough, charismatic enough to get a new set of keys to the new set of locks. She was done, and she should have been, in retrospect, she should have been I wouldn't have blamed her if she'd been done a lot sooner. So now I'm living in a, not a tenement apartment, but not a really nice apartment either with another guy who's a compulsive gambler looking back on it. Um, And it's December in Chicago and I have a car that has very little heat in it, an apartment that doesn't have much more. And I owe organized crime bookmakers a bunch of money. There used to be what was called wild card weekend. It was the first weekend of the NFL playoffs. I went 0 for 4. I lost all four games and I didn't have any money. And prior to the relationship ending, she had put the Gamblers Anonymous phone number next to the phone. I looked at that phone number for about six months every night when I called my bookmaker. I never dialed it, but I looked at it. And so now I'm really jammed up and I call them the number. And I go to my first Gamblers Anonymous meeting. Pretty strange meeting. Five other guys there, no women. No women in Gamblers Anonymous at that time, 1984 in Chicago. First one was going to come in about 1985. It's a whole other story. Um, and I knew I was going to have to go sit down with these people and that I owed the debt to and work out a payment plan, which I did. 
I didn't have a job, but I was work, looking now looking hard to get a job. Some things that happen in recovery are the reverse of what you would expect. Here's what I mean. I got the best job of my entire career. Very lucrative job. Mm-hmm. General manager of a large restaurant and nightclub. And it probably wasn't a good thing because if I'd had a, a less lucrative job, I probably wouldn't have fallen into the delusion that I just had a financial problem. So the only thing that I could do that was really right was I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. I went to a meeting every night with impure motivation. There was more coffee in the meetings than I had in my apartment, and one of you nice people would buy me a hamburger. And I didn't have any of those in my apartment either. But you seemed like a nice group of people. But I didn't really know whether you could help me. Were you still gambling at that time? Not regularly. But but very occasionally, I, I'd see a, a horse that I particularly liked or I was still following gambling activity. I then traded addictions to alcohol for a couple of years, and I had sworn I would never become an alcoholic because there was a lot of alcoholism in my family, a lot of negative consequences. But I did. I put down the cocaine and the gambling simultaneously, but then I started to drink alcoholically. And I moved to Florida, and I found a really good therapist who really understood gambling addiction. He was also, he had many, many hats. He'd been a collector for the mob. He was also an ordained minister. He was also a licensed therapist. Um, And he was a recovering alcoholic with about 30 years in recovery. And so there was no residential treatment, but what I did was I lived in his office for about three months. I went to his office every day from nine to five. Did some groups, did some individual sessions, got some, a lot of homework assignments that I did in his office. And then almost every night I went to a Gamblers Anonymous meeting or an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. There were only two Gamblers Anonymous meetings within a 50 mile radius of me. I filled in with Alcoholics Anonymous. So now I'm really starting to launch myself into the recovery process. This is 1988. This was after I got a DUI, driving under the influence. So I then was court ordered as a result of the DUI to do private therapy as well as group therapy. And what I was already doing satisfied that or what I was, I was just starting into the therapy process when I got the DUI and I, and I'm going to AA because there's not a lot of GA around now in 19, I think about about the years here. I mean, I'm interested to, to ask you why you think about that, Rick. Um, I mean, how, it sounds like quite a journey there in, in recovery. Um, how long was it until that sort of light bulb moment, I guess you might say, um, and you come into to the realisation that you just couldn't continue both gambling uh, and or drinking? Um, and, you, you know, that was a life that was going to leave you destitute if it hadn't already or perhaps even dead. How- I remember the night very specifically. It's probably six months to a year into recovery. When I was sitting in a GA meeting and I had an aha moment, the aha moment was this. I know that I have a gambling problem. I've known it for a long time and now a drinking problem. But I'm finally realizing tonight because of what I've heard in this meeting and because of the therapy work that I've been doing in the daytime, that my life will never get better as long as I continue to drink and or gamble. So I have to do whatever I have to do to stay stopped a day at a time. And that was attending meetings. That was a real aha moment. Every day. And before that, when I said to you, I don't know if GA can help me, that was because I had the following thought, two thoughts running around in my head for a long time. I would sit in meetings and I would hear people share and I would say, this is a group of really sick people. I'm not nearly as sick as they are. They're really sick. I mean, these people were talking about pouring thousands of dollars into a slot machine. Come on. Okay. But the other thought was worse. The other thought was, you know, I think this Gamblers Anonymous can help these people, but I'm not convinced it can help me because I think I'm a lot sicker than they are. I think my pathology is a lot deeper than theirs is. And of course, neither of those things was true. I was just another compulsive gambler. So how did Algamas happen? I'm going to AA meetings. And, well, let me back up. My mom dies. I'm an only child. I realize... In the early 90s, this is, isn't it? Right, right. Yeah. My mom dies. I realize that my father cannot live alone. And so 
either I can send him to an adult assisted living facility, which I don't want to do, or he and I can get a house together, which I also don't want to do because as much as I love my father, I probably wind up in a psych facility. He and I are very different people, you know? But the third alternative that I come up with is I call my buddy who's a real estate agent on the little island where I live, and I said, find me a duplex. I'll put him in half, and, uh, and I'll live in the other half of the duplex. And instead of bringing me a two-bedroom, two-bath alongside of a two-bedroom, two-bath, he brings me a three-bedroom, two-bath on top of a three-bedroom, two-bath. So now I buy this duplex. I move my father in on the first floor. I move in on the second floor. And I still have five, I still have four more bedrooms. So I have guys in Alcoholics Anonymous new to sobriety coming up to me saying, do you have a room to rent? I say, yes. I say, yes, again. I say, yes, again. All of a sudden, without any specific business plan, I'm running an alcohol halfway house. But how, uh, I mean, and, and they paid rent, I trust. So there was no funding or anything like that. It was purely just from. Exactly. They're, 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 they're paying rent. They're paying room and board every week. I, I think when I started, I was charging $75 a week mm. for, for room and board. Okay. And then my GA sponsor says, why don't you convert it to all gamblers? There's no place like that in the country. And I do that. And then he says to me, why don't, it seems like you like doing what you're doing. Why don't you go back and do the clinical training that you need to do to become an internationally certified gambling counselor and start to offer modestly priced residential treatment? And I do that. And Algamus is born. It's an interesting uh, story of evolution there, how it started from the uh, from the alcohol uh, side of things and moving it across to, to the gambling. Now, for example, um, has that expanded anymore? Is it still quite uh, a, a small size? And, and what happened was that 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 happened in 1992. In 1996, mm-hmm. I had been friendly with people in Charlotte, North Carolina, Gamblers Anonymous. There was a video poker epidemic going on right across the border in South Carolina. They said, we need an algamist in South Carolina. I said, one of you has to go get counselor training and one of you has to bird dog the real estate for me and we'll try to do it. And we did. Now I, now I opened a second one in South Carolina, also eight beds. No, um, seven beds. Um, then in 2000, I was dating a, a a French-Canadian woman from Quebec City. And I'm in Quebec City at her place in the summertime, and she's reading the Sunday newspaper in French, which I I don't speak French. And she says, you won't believe this. She says, some guy's going to open a gambling treatment center in Quebec. Would you like to meet him? I said, sure. So I meet him, and he wants me to be his partner in a French-speaking algamist in Quebec. And I do that. Um, Then in... 2005, my dad had had just passed on, and I was no longer doing treatment in in Florida. Um, My sponsor made a match with an alcohol chemical dependency center on the other side of Florida, and we opened an algamist there. The Quebec algamist wound up closing. I made a, a cultural mistake. When we opened the program in Quebec, what I thought was... We'll do this bilingually, and we'll attract people from all over the all over Canada to come to this treatment center in Quebec. Anglophone Quebecers aren't coming to Francophone Quebec for treatment. It's not happening. That that, that was my cultural mistake. So when it wound up being only a French program, I said I'm going to bow out. I'll be your consultant. You run the program. He did for a couple more years. Then he went on to do something else. That's what happens when you try and be all in, in, inclusive and, and and so forth. I understand. I understand where you're coming from on on, on that point. Uh, in terms of um, Algamus itself, how do people find you, and what's the methodology in terms of enrollment, for example? My sponsor said to me early on. He said, "Your effectiveness as a tree tour." will be in direct proportion to how Gamblers Anonymous feels about you nationally and internationally. He's absolutely correct. My greatest referral source to this very day is all of the gamblers attending Gamblers Anonymous who were previously my clients. And I'm very, very grateful to each and every one of them for that. Because the guy comes into a meeting in New York or in California or in Illinois or in Louisiana, and he's struggling. He's relapsing continuously. And one of the algamist graduates says to him, you know, I went to a program in Arizona and it really helped me to get launched into recovery. You ought to give Rick Benson a call. Here's his phone number. Now, I also get calls from, there are 
uh, in the, out of the 50 states, there are now at least 40 state councils on problem gambling. State Council on Problem Gambling does information education, advocates for information education, treatment, prevention, and most of those state councils run hotlines. There's also a national gambling hotline. I get referrals from those state councils. I also now get a significant number of referrals from some of them recovering gamblers, some not, um, therapists all over the, and counselors all over the country who I've developed relationships with. And what I have done for, me, I haven't done it so much, particularly since COVID, but prior, my role at Algamus stopped being clinical in 2000, somewhere between 2005 and 2010. I became the marketer, administrator, networker. I would, most of these state councils have a one day or two day annual conference. I would be there exhibiting, doing sponsorships sometimes, that kind of thing. So that's how my role evolved. In 2005, 2007, um, a psychologist from Phoenix, Arizona, who had been a referral source of mine for years, said, we need an algamist in Arizona. The guy who was running my program, Jody Pegram, who's still my partner, he had gotten sober in Arizona from the gambling and drugs. I said, let's go to Arizona. And you introduced me to these, this, the owner of this treatment center in Arizona. We'll see if we can lease some beds and maybe lease some office space. We opened, wound up opening in Arizona. I was already gone from the Palm Beach County facility. I was just running, at that time, I was just running South Carolina. And um, I was just running South Carolina. And so what I, what I physically did is I moved the South Carolina program to Arizona in 2007. Now, we were freestanding, which meant that we only did self-pay. And then in 2013, we merged under the umbrella of an alcohol chemical dependency corporation. And the big, the big advantage of that still is, is that now we accept major medical insurance as well as self-pay. People normally stay four to six weeks. We ask people, unless there's a compelling reason otherwise, we ask people to make a minimum of a four-week commitment to the program. Um, we have a lovely mountain lodge that you can see photos of on our website at algamist.com. Mm -hmm. We take a maximum of 12 clients at a time. Treatment very individualized, uh, led by a clinical director who's our psychologist, two very experienced gambling therapists who've been with me for a long time, two internationally certified gambling counselors. I mean, we absolutely are adamant that all of our clients attend Gamblers Anonymous meetings while they're in treatment. Because I believe that treatment is about the process of self-discovery, and Gamblers Anonymous is about sustained long-term recovery. It's about community. So we get people, one of our challenges is this, we get people who, for a variety of reasons, are anti-Gamblers Anonymous. One, they have a significant amount of social phobia or social introversion, which makes it difficult for them to sit in Gamblers Anonymous meetings. Two, they have been to Gamblers Anonymous meetings I don't want to call them bad Gamblers Anonymous. I want to say that they're not the best Gamblers Anonymous meetings they ever attended. You know, me meetings that, that aren't really structured well and or that don't really serve the need very well. And I, I get irate every time I hear this story, but I hear it, unfortunately, and it's true in Alcoholics Anonymous and it's true in Gamblers Anonymous. I'm just speaking the truth. When I get women come into our program telling me they went to Gamblers Anonymous meetings and they got hit on, I get absolutely livid. I can, I can understand. It's, it, it's, it, it's interesting that you say that. It's something, uh, again, that I've referenced before. Me, myself, uh, personally, I, I, I attended uh, Gamblers Anonymous many years ago. Um, I think probably I, I can maybe liken it to your experience where, I mean, I was going under a pretense I was going because my then partner wanted me to go so there's two things here so there are two things one I wasn't getting anything from it because I had no interest in stopping gambling so I wasn't going to get anything from it but two on the other side of that is I didn't particularly like my meeting I've spoken since about that in my recovery to people that have obviously got a lot more experience from a, a, a GA perspective and I told them about some of the things that would happen in our meetings and they say yeah that doesn't sound too good you know you should try this but 
in recovery, um, particularly when I came into recovery, it was during the time of the first lockdown. So the only opportunity that I had was for online meetings. And I would jump on meetings from around the world, not necessarily just like GA or anything, just uh, any form of meetings just to stop me from gambling, essentially. And, um, you know, I'm a lot more open minded now than I was back then, that's for sure. And Chris, who's you know, my usual co-host is a, is a massive advocate for, for GA, but it is interesting that you do touch upon that. Yeah, so so <clears throat> we don't treat people, we tell people pre-admission that you will be going to Gamblers Anonymous meetings. And <clears throat> we also tell our clients, our, one of our many missions during the course of the treatment process is to help you feel comfortable to go back to your home environment to Gamblers Anonymous to increase your comfort level if there's discomfort level about GA when you get to us. We want to help you to work through that. So everybody leaves with a written individualized aftercare plan that is negotiated with the treatment team prior to departure, every client. And usual components of that are a return to outpatient counseling or therapy with a gambling-specific therapist in their home environment and a referral to Gamblers Anonymous meetings. Now, here's one of the critiques that's happened to me. And, you know, I, I accept that everybody has their own opinion and not everybody in the world needs to like or love Rick Benson. That's okay. Um, I've served on the Gamblers Anonymous Board of Trustees for about 15 years out of the last 30. And I've had, had people on the Board of Trustees tell me that the reason that I'm there is because I'm trying to silent, I'm trying to subtly market my treatment program. It's actually 180 degrees the other the other way. The re- one of the reasons that I'm there is because now I've developed relationships with trustees in Portland, Oregon, and Dallas, Texas, and Cincinnati, Ohio, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So when I have that treat that that client returning to Philadelphia from treatment, I can call John, the trustee in Philadelphia, and say, John, can and and most of these guys I know well enough that I don't even have to ask anymore to give out their phone numbers. Because John has said to me, you can give my phone number to anybody, Rick, that's coming out of treatment. But now I have that link back into the GA community that I can refer that client to. And I don't think there are very many treatment centers in the U.S. or even in the world that can offer that. Well, I mean, it sounds like you're doing a a wonderful uh, job, Rick. And can you just estimate, since you started Algamus, would it even be possible to put a number on it? How many people have been through the service? Probably close to 3,000. Wow. wow. We're, we're at about 100 clients a year and we're coming. Next year will be our 30th anniversary. Or maybe nine, say say 90, 90 clients a year to be conservative. Uh, so somewhere around 2,500 clients. I mean, that's 2,500 to 3,000 3, clients in, in 30 years. Yeah, very, very impressive. And in terms of... Um, people reaching out to you to, to get a hold of you, what should they do? Uh, just check out the website. Can you give us a little promotion of that? Check out the website at algamist.com. Mm-hmm. You can call the 800 number on the website. Mm-hmm. We do accept people from all over the world. Unfortunately, we can't accept British or Spanish or French insurance. So for anybody who's outside the United States, it becomes self-pay. Um, but um, uh, yeah, check out the website. I'll I'll even offer my cell phone number, which is 941 is the area code 778-2496. That's 941-778-2496. Call me directly. Um, Even if you're not, you know, even if you don't have an interest in coming to treatment, if you have interest in just talking about treatment resources around the world, outpatient resources, Gamblers Anonymous resources, um, I'd be be glad to to help you to, uh, to, uh, to refer you. Uh, accordingly, depending on what your need is. Brilliant. Fantastic. And we'll certainly put a link in the episode description. Well, Rick, it's uh, I've really enjoyed today's show. And I just want to thank you um, for sharing your experiences and, and uh, well, the, the wealth of knowledge that you have. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan. Real pleasure to be with you today. Um, look forward to perhaps being with you again in the future. And thank you for all that you're doing um, not only to support your own recovery, but to support the recovery of so many others. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, appreciate that, Rick. Thank you. And as for you, our listeners, please stick around because after this very, very short interlude, co-host uh, and love of my life, 
uh, dare I say, Chris Gillen will be joining me for a little discussion, a season four review or summary type thing. Um, so yeah, you know, see you in a sec. And so there we have it. That was our last guest of the series, Rick Benson from Algamus Gambling Treatment Services. But we should wrap up the series by having a little catch up with my fabulous co-host, Chris, who was unable uh, to, to record with us today. And um, simply because he was supporting the, the Kaga Park the Bus Tour at the time of recording. In fact, we're recording this actually a, a couple of days a, ahead of the Rick interview. Otherwise, I'd obviously be asking him how he found the day with the Kaga team, something we both vehemently support. Anyway, Chris, good to have you with us. Good to be here, Ryan. Good to be here as always. Lovely. And uh, so, Chris, we've we've come to the end of another season. It all started off with welcoming big steppers Tom Fleming, Emily Beck and Chris Hulse. So let's go back in time and revisit that experience, the walk itself. How did you find that walk? Absolutely horrendous. How did you find it? Same. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, joking aside, like, yeah, my feet hurt. The walk was very, very hard, but isn't that the point? You know, that's what that's what we're doing this for. You know, we can, we can go through this pain now. Um, because we'll never have to go through, you know, nothing will be as painful as when we were in the in the addiction. You know, we can go through this, and we need to we need to do these things to um, to make change, and that's what we want to do, isn't it? And uh, I, I thoroughly loved every minute of it. Um, my best mate came up for the first few days, which was cracking, um, and he got involved, and he's been following, um, you know, following the big step ever since, and and it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful that, and. Um, yeah, my dad came along to some of it. He's always supporting this stuff, and that's that's fabulous. My mum was there on the last day at Wembley, and I loved it all. I loved being with everybody. He did. He did some of it. He did some of it. He did more than you. Yeah, but I did. I did the bits with the hills. Don't forget that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, going back to to that particular time is. Um, I mean, I, I loved it. Uh, I loved um, going through the uh, Lake District and indeed the Peak District. The Peak District was fantastic. In fact, um, I was in charge of a small group. Um, there was, what, four of us uh, going through the Peak District. And we went well, of course, because my map reading skills are horrendous. But it actually was incredible, like the scenery. And even uh, Tony uh, Parente uh, commented, he was like, Ryan, I don't know where you've led us, but this is so beautiful. I was like, I know. And then, but the funny thing is, is we were, we were walking along and it was me, um, Tony Parente, uh, Stacey Goodwin and her partner, Amy. And that, that was all just the four of us on that particular leg. And we were, we were walking along this, this particular road. And the next thing, you know, all these wasps just appeared from nowhere, like a swarm of wasps and started attacking us. And obviously I was like, Guys, we've got like yellow hoodies on here. We need to run, like, and so we just legged it. But really, really enjoyed it. And Owen uh, Bailey was an absolute treat on 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 the the particular uh, the the leg. I, I recall in the Lake District when you know we're waiting for him, and I tell you what, he was just making videos all the time, and he was just so in his own bubble, um, and he didn't realise we were sort of kind of like waiting for him. And you're like, Owen, Owen. And he's like, oh, sorry. And he's just recording himself. But yeah, it was uh, it was a, an absolutely brilliant journey. I'll tell you what, though. Owen saved my life. And I mean this. I was walking up the canal that day. What day was it? It was um, it was the day after the Lake District, walking up that canal. And I was about a mile from the end of the canal, so a mile till lunch. You know, we'd walked about a million miles, but it was nearly lunchtime. And I couldn't move anymore. And I'd run out of water and I laid on the floor. And everybody who passed me, because I was in quite a good place at this point, everyone who passed me had run out of water. And I thought I was going to die. And Owen was the last person and he had water and he just gave me some water and it saved my life. Honestly, I was, I was imagining... Proper dad's army type moment. Exactly, that's exactly what it was because I was imagining drinking milk from a, the udder of a cow at that point. It was, I was like, this is going to save my life. What else am I going to do? And thank God Owen was there. But you know what? Um, everybody was amazing. That's what this was about for me. Um, just seeing people I already knew and building those relationships more and meeting other people. The whole team were fantastic. The people we had on the show, I mean, first thing to say is Tom Fleming. Tom's now um, working as a communications manager at Gam With Lives, isn't he? So well done, Tom, on that. Emily just arranged the event amazingly well. Um, 
to have the minibus and everything else that Catherine was driving. Chris Hulse's sister, how good was that to have that support? Absolutely wonderful. And Chris, wow, he, he walks as well, doesn't he? He's quite a walker. Talking about that Peak District, I've never seen somebody walk so quick. He was trying to get out of the um, he was trying to get out of the sun before it came out because he's um he's so ginger, isn't he? He's like, I've got to get burnt. And he like, he was literally sitting next to me at halfway, and he was like, I'm going to get burnt, so I'm leaving now before everybody else. And I'm getting back before. 4pm or whatever time it said it was going to get even sunnier. Fair play to him, he did it. Chris Hulse, a.k.a. Greg Rutherford. Uh, and there were times, in fact, where I left early thinking, you know what, I'm going to get a bit of a head start after lunch. And, um, yeah, he just came absolutely tankering past. And I'm like, how is this possible? It was just absolutely incredible, uh, incredible to see. But as well as that camaraderie that you refer to, I think as well, just uh, to, to reference in the points around um, the interactions that we had with the general public uh, over the course of the, what, 10 days is um, just absolutely fantastic you know when they see us and they ask us what it's about and you know they, they it's, a, it's a campaign they they definitely back and they talk about their own stories and they bring in you know stories around gambling related harm or some people uh, perhaps haven't had that experience and and aren't necessarily aware but when that when you actually talk about it, they go actually yeah you've got a good point there and um I, and and yeah the, the support was absolutely uh overwhelming and yeah um incredible but bringing it back to the pod chris um, uh, this season, we have had uh, another 14 voices of lived experience, which, um, to my calculation, takes the total to 73 voices of lived experience across the four series. And wow. if my math is correct, um, we've now amassed a total of 99 guests, which is just incredible. Um, how important do you think lived experience voices are from a listening content perspective and indeed service delivery in general? Oh, I think it's it's one of the most important things, you know. Um, thinking about myself, even this week, you know, I've I've had some difficulties over the weekend, and what's got me through is talking to people like me, who've suffered with a gambling addiction and have come through it and are in recovery. Um, so yeah, to me, it gives me strength, and knowing that others have been through it makes it feel like it's not just me. And then I, I feel like those of us who have got through this and want to talk about it are there to try and break the stigma as well. You know, we can empathise with other people. So um, I think it's so important. And, you know, I think one of the things as well is what I've noticed since we've done this pod, and me and you have spoke about this as well, um, just between ourselves, is that we've spoken to a lot of people who said they come and find the pod as maybe an entrance into their recovery, um, maybe just going to a, a recovery meeting or phoning a helpline might feel a bit much at the start because they still feel like they're on their own. But actually... By listening to people like us and and the other pods that are out there, this is great. You know, there are more and more pods now, aren't there? Which is absolutely amazing. Um, and it can mean, oh, you can feel like I'm really not alone. And you can reach out to the people who are on those pods, or actually, you can build the courage by listening to it to then go and ask for help elsewhere. Yeah, and you make a great point there. That's something that I was just about to say. The amount of people that um, you know have spoken to me with regards to the podcast and say. Um, so some long-term listeners and they'd listen to every episode but there are plenty of people and I respect this that say your podcast was fantastic for the early part of my recovery and you know I, I sort of flitter in and out from time to time and it's amazing when you actually uh, view the listening statistics about you know how many people start from the very first episode I almost sort of wish that they didn't because the quality, the audio quality is nowhere near as good. Uh, it sort of gets better as you get towards the end of season one and we start investing in equipment because it actually starts to take off more than we ever envisaged. Uh, it's almost like uh, when we started off, it was almost like a, a pirate radio station <laughs> uh, sort of thing. But when, when you actually check that, it is it, it's quite incredible. And um, yeah, the amount of people that I now liaise with on a weekly basis or, you know, just check in with, um every now and then um on the back of the podcast is is quite incredible and you know it's something that we've we've both mentioned I, I believe certainly something I've mentioned on on podcasts that I've been invited on selfishly it's a fantastic tool for my own recovery and the fact that it supports other people and you know I'm not sure what it's like with you when people reach out to you maybe having listened to the podcast but you know people reach out to me and I say on the podcast like reach out to Chris and I you know that's what we're we're here for we'll always you know find time to respond and 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 support you in the best way possible and some people have reached out to me and sort of gone 
I'm really sorry about asking or, you know, I don't wish to be a hindrance or something along those lines. And my instant response is, I love it. Absolutely. Like, I love the fact that you're reaching out. And and I even, I'm very blunt and honest with them. I say, the reason for this is because you think I can help you. I, I, I believe that I can help you and, and I will be there to support you, but you help me as well. And so it's a two-way street. So what I want to say, if there is anyone listening to this now and, you know, don't be a stranger, feel free to reach out to both myself or Chris, whether it be via email or, you know, just um, messages on Facebook or, 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 or DM us on Twitter or whatever. We're readily available. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why we say, it, isn't it? That's why we say it. And actually, when, when I get a message, um, it just makes me smile because that is somebody else who has got the strength to start a journey and how beautiful is that because because I know and you know and lots of the listeners to this podcast know how hard that first step is but once you make it you've got a chance um so yeah please please reach out to us you know we really genuinely mean that for sure and in terms of standout episodes this series now it's always a, a tough one uh, to talk about this when we reflect about the series because everyone brings something different and, you know, we've done pods by ourselves singly sometimes. Um, but on a personal level, I'll go first uh, as, as I'm already talking, but um, I, I do wish to mention um, a, a few that certainly stand out from, from this particular season and uh, one being Annie Ashton, um, which I found particularly poignant given her story and um, just incredible to tell her story just 15 weeks, you know, that's less than four months after Luke's passing. And um, maybe she might be listening to this, I'm, I'm not sure, but she's certainly someone that I have a, a huge amount of admiration for, um, that's for sure. And uh, I certainly enjoyed the Stacey Goodwin recording. Um, as people know, I get on well uh, with her, um, incredibly well. And uh, that's even away from the recording. You, you know, we've spent a bit of time together and, uh, you know, been chilling out, go to events together. And she's just a, a great character. In fact, I hope to see her next week, uh, possibly go for, for a drink after as well. Um, and one that really, really, really did stand out for me um, and one that I found really emotive, extremely challenging to record, and that was the childhood trauma episode with Ian Richards. Um, originally, um, we recorded a substantial segment of this episode, and at the time, Ian was on the Epic Restart Foundation, so in the middle of absolute nowhere, and so his internet kept on dropping in and out and after about an hour and a half of getting snippets and stuff um you know we 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 had to halt the recording and obviously re-record from from the off because it would have been far too much editing and I, actually I felt really really guilty doing that but in terms of the recording hearing him um you know talking about being raped as a minor and and um you know given my own experiences in childhood it, it, it sort of um like came flooding back. In fact, I probably get upset, you know, continuing to talk about it. But, you know, I, I welled up during that recording and and did, um, you know, shed some tears on the recording, certainly after the recording. And it was a really challenging one. Uh, but for you, Chris, um, what have been the, the, the standout uh, episodes? Well, it's really, really hard to pick. And, and the ones you've said there, you know, they mean a lot to me as well. And, and you know, unfortunately, I couldn't do the one with Annie. Um, I was supposed to be doing it and I was unwell. Um, and, you know, you know what I think of Annie, absolutely amazing what she's doing. And I was very lucky that Annie reached out to me quite early on and we made contact and 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 then, you know, I've seen her grow over these these weeks and it's amazing. The one you've just spoken about with Ian, um, I love listening to that because I wasn't a part of that recording um, and purposely so, we decided it would be best to do it this way. And, do you know, it's great because I'd spoken to Ian on the last day of the big step. I met him on the big step for the first time um, and we spoke about it there. But to really hear it in its entirety is very, very powerful. Um, and, you know, I, I know that what he has shared will help many others. And I know Ian's very happy to have done that because we've spoken since. And that's fantastic. But for me, um, other standouts, do you know what it is? I think, actually, some of the ones that just I relate to people so much when they tell their story. Um, and I know when we did the one with uh, Broke Girl Society, I was like, whoa. I get this. This feels a lot like me. And actually, also last week's episode with Chris Murphy, I felt the same. You know, there's something about talking to, to the people on those episodes, which were just making me feel like 
this could, you know, I'm talking to somebody who has gone through exactly the same as me. And yeah, one's a man, one's a woman, but so what? And, I, and that's why, going back to your last question as well, why the lived experience is so important because I get something from everyone I talk to. I've loved every episode. They've all been really special. But sometimes you just hear stories that you relate to so closely, don't you? Great to hear that. And I just uh, just had a little moment here. I'm, I'm sat here in my People's FC shirt, which sort of reminds me about the charity day that we had at Billericay. Um what did you make of, of that day then? Um, I mean, it was a, an absolute storm, wasn't it? It was incredible. It was certainly bloody hot out on the pitch, that's for sure. I was going to say, it wasn't a storm. It was absolutely roasting. But no, what a day. Absolutely superb. You know, we've made loads of money for three fantastic charities, first and foremost. Um, there was, it was a brilliant day of football. Steve Watts from Gamfam and my dad in the dugout. I mean, they loved it. My dad certainly loved it. He was, you know trying to sort his team out for weeks before and uh, he was very happy uh, with the end result. Um, but no, it was just lovely, wasn't it? Everybody coming together. Um, the People's FC, what a wonderful team they are. And what I love as well is that some of the guys who were playing on that day from the Gambling Recovery Community have played for the People's FC since. I know Chris Hulse was off playing uh, the, the other week in a game as well with them. And I know, uh, I think they got in touch with Bray. Bray may have played. I, I can't remember, but... I think Stephen as well. From Bet No More, I think they reached out to as well. And if he hasn't played, Sharman should be playing for him because he was absolutely cracking that day. Well, uh, and and I mean, I'm sure James Grimes would if he if he could. But obviously, being in Manchester, it's a little bit tricky. And and the People's FC being based in London, but James Grimes was certainly uh, you know a bit of a, a daddy's favourite of yours. I mean, it's it's uh, well, we played the whole game. He got a full, he got a full ninety minutes, didn't he? He did, but he wasn't doing as he was told in the first half. He looks at me at half time. He said, "What does your dad think I am, a professional?" Absolutely <laughs> <laughs> uh, brilliant. And uh, I guess the the big question on everyone's lips is: uh, Will there be a season five? Of course. What a daft question. (laughs) No, absolutely. You know, I mean, we've just said already, haven't we, how this helps us as well as we hope it helps other people. So, um, you know, we sat here for half hour gassing before we press the record button because we just have a lot of fun. So why wouldn't we continue to do this? I love it. You love it. And I'm sure you're going to talk about it a bit more. Maybe some of the challenges we have when we try and record this wonderful podcast of ours. It isn't easy all the time, is it? But we do it because we love it. Oh, it's... It, yeah, I mean, it, I'm I'm not gonna play the violin or anything, but yeah, it can be it can be difficult at times. I mean, we've already got some guests sort of lined up for for season five. I think you know the great difficulty is is is, and and I respect it. You know, things crop up with with certain guests, and you, you know, I'm I'm always you know polite around it when you reach out to people and you work on something, and you know, you sort of kind of like more than pencil people in um and and then obviously it sort of gets pulled and then you're sort of sweating on another guest and stuff but you know there's always plenty of people out there look we're on 99 guests so we have to go for season five to get to the uh, to, hit the ton. figures there and get to the big 100 exactly hit the ton so it's yeah it, it i mean other challenges you know logistics and, and timings and stuff obviously we've had guests uh, around the world and we've had to record at some ridiculous times um namely uh, anna bardsley when she was on um but most of the time most i think you know it does work out you know with american guests for example they tend to record you know they're, they're happy to sort of say look we'll, we'll record morning time for us so it'll be afternoon time for yourself um uh, but yeah uh, there are challenges um, uh, and it does take time and, you know, we don't profiteer from this or anything. It's sort of, you know, done as a, as a hobby. Um, so uh, an enjoyable hobby at that. So I don't wish to come across as if I'm, if I'm whinging or anything like that. <laughs> um, Bloody whinger. <laughs> I mean, it is, isn't it? We love it. We do. We do love it. And um, I guess, you know, if people want to be on, reach out to us as well. You know, that's another thing. You know, if you want to come on the pod, reach out to us and we can, we can sort an episode out that way. You know, it's, it's, it's a good one because um, we want a diverse range of people and we try and, I don't know, we try and make our episodes um, 
a bit interesting. You know, we don't just try and we, we try and do it a little bit differently, don't we? We want to pick a topic and then and then have people on and talk about that. Sometimes we do just want people on to share their stories. I think that's important. But we've always wanted to be a little bit different to that. And I think we've achieved it. And I hope we continue to. For sure. And uh, something that I was actually thinking about, um, and I, I think I've, I've shared with you before, Chris, and that was possibly um, doing a spin-off or maybe every other episode, I don't know, uh, where it, it sort of is a, a therapy type uh, reading. I think that worked really well with uh, Chris Purnell, who uh, did did that piece uh, earlier on this particular season, um, and I thought that was particularly powerful. Um, it was just basically him in front of uh, a microphone. He may have even recorded it on his phone. I don't know, uh, but he just basically told his story um, from from childhood to now. And um, when I listened to that, I found it extremely um, moving and very relatable. And I think there was something around that. It's very raw, um, and that could be something. Uh, but that's something maybe we go away and have a little think about and and come back um you know to season five after a little break and uh, yeah let's let's see how it goes and, and and to be honest chris i think that just about wraps us up for for the season um have you got any famous last words yeah just to say thank you everybody for listening um if this is your first episode you've listened to please go back and listen to the rest you know we do this to try and help others and please also remember you know there's loads of other pods out there as well please go and listen to them because we might be for you we might not be for you but there are plenty of others Um, please go check them out for sure and i'd like to close by thanking everyone for sticking with us and listening to us ramble on as i always say it's the the guests and indeed the listeners that really make all better off what it is so um you know we're we're proud to have received tens of thousands of downloads since launching last april and um like we've reiterated today it is an absolute pleasure to do so thank you for listening and until next time and even beyond season five please remain gamble free there are links on our website under the support section should you require or alternatively or additionally chris and i as we were to say uh, as we were saying earlier on are always at hand so please reach out to us Take care and catch you all next season. You've been listening to the All Bets Are Off podcast. To find out more about the creators of the pod, then please visit our website, www.allbetsareoff.co.uk. And don't forget to give us a follow on Twitter at allbetsareoff underscore and share this podcast with others. Until next time, stay safe and remain gamble free. Thank you for listening.